Today's, today's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the reading of God's word. Um, the passage just read for, uh, by, by Dan is something that we're going to actually spend more time looking at. But I, I, I want to actually read to you uh, in the same book, uh, in the book of Romans, something that's a little more basic that I think I need to spend time with before we actually get into more deeply that passage that was just read. And that's from Romans chapter 1, so from the very beginning. And this is what Paul says in the very beginning of his letter to the Romans. He says this, Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Um, faith comes to people in different ways. Um, it, it doesn't just come to people the same way or even the same time. Um, for some people, faith comes in a way that's more experiential, right? They... they they went through something, and uh, something happened in their life, and all of a sudden, they, they see things a little differently. They're a little more open to faith. Other people, they, they understand faith maybe through relationship, that uh, they came to faith because of a person, uh, a relationship with a loved one, a friend, a church member, uh, various different ways. Um, and still, other people come to faith um, intellectually. And the reason I mention this is that if you don't know this already, um, this is how I came to faith. Uh, I came to faith through intellectual questioning. Um, I came to faith because I had a lot of doubts and a lot of questions, and they're more on the intellectual level. I grew up in church, and if you don't know this already, my parents were very faithful church members growing up, but I've always had these questions that they could never answer for me. And so I rejected Christianity for a few years, uh, because nobody was giving me these answers that I thought were pretty important, and this is why uh, after going to college, I didn't go to church for a few years, I uh, just self-declared atheist and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, but eventually, long story short, I eventually come back to question faith again. And I did look on myself or look at others for answers, and I did study. And so this is why uh, my sermons, if you listen to them, tend to be a little bit heavy. I'm going to be very honest. I, I really try hard. I really try hard to water it down, okay? I know I do. I, I mean, I know because not everyone here is a thinker. I know everyone not here is, is like me. Some of you are more feelers, and some of you are more experiential. Some of you are more relational. Uh, but this is who I am. And so 
um, I, I, I tend to be a little more intellectual, and that means that it requires a little more thinking sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. And as I look at the book of Romans here, we're still talking about thanksgiving, but I'm going to just preface this by saying I probably could have spent a little more time taking what I've got here and sort of um, cooking it a little more, right? You know that turkey that you cook, it could have been a little more cooked because it's not quite done. I could have, I could have done that so I could just kind of simplify things here a little bit more. But uh, I, I didn't get enough time to do this, and so what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to throw this out to you. Uh, I'm just going to say things, and I'm just going to, if anything, God will do what he will do with it. And it's, if anything, hopefully it will get you to think at, at, at any level. And if it's too hard, uh, if, if you get lost, um, it's okay, because um, we'll probably come back to it again sometime later. But the good news is, this is why this sermon will be a little bit shorter, all right? Um, Paul's letter to the Romans, his whole summary you can find for his purpose in writing this letter is in chapter 1, verse 16. And it's this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. That's pretty much his summary statement for why he's writing this whole letter. He wants to talk about the gospel. What is the gospel? Literally, it means good news that there's something good that he wants to share. But what Paul does in the beginning of Romans, not even just, just chapter 3, which was just read, but also the beginning of chapter 1, what Paul does is, before he gets to the good news, he describes or explains the bad news. In fact, all the way from chapter 1 through chapter 3, this is what he does. It's pretty heavy. It's pretty serious. Paul is a lawyer of his day. He's a Pharisee. They're lawyers of their day. And his goal here is to indict everyone, Jew or Gentile, religious and non-religious, under the same indictment. Paul's idea here is that to appreciate good news, right, to appreciate how good it is, he wants you first to understand the bad news, how bad it is. And this is why in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans, he talks so much about this idea called sin. Sin. That word sin now has become less and less of a word used today. We don't really talk about that word as much, and we need to actually come back to that word a little later next year to spend more time, because it's important to understand what sin is. Paul spends the first three chapters of his book on this, okay? But let me just, I'm not tired to talk necessarily about sin per se, but how it relates to giving thanks. Because when you read in chapter 1, verse 21, this is what Paul says. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. So for Paul, at the very beginning of his letter, his indictment against this church and people in the world, Jew, Gentile, religious, non-religious, is that because of sin, one of the results of sin is that they do not honor him as God or give him thanks. Last week we talked about Thanksgiving in a more positive light and encouraging light. This week it's a little different. Paul is getting a little more serious with the idea of what it means to give God thanks. We all know and we've heard that being thankful is an important thing. Uh, Robert Emmons, a psychologist from the University of California, Davis, he says this. He says, quote, let me explain something about gratitude. We all begin life dependent on others. 
And most of us, end of life, we are dependent on others. And if we are lucky, in between, we have roughly 60 years or so of unacknowledged dependency. The human condition is such that throughout life, not just at the beginning and the end, but throughout life, we are profoundly dependent on other people. Gratitude is the truest approach to life. We did not create or fashion ourselves. We did not birth ourselves. Life is about giving and receiving and repaying. We are receptive beings, dependent on the help of others, on their gifts and their kindness, end quote. Emmons, a psychologist, is not a Christian. And yet even a non-Christian recognizes that people should be more thankful than they really are. And the question that I want to ask us this morning or this afternoon is this. Why is it then that we seem to be more thankful on Thanksgiving and the holidays? Why isn't it that we are more thankful throughout the whole year, all the time? Why is it that I have a hard time just being and feeling thankful? And if I were to ask many of you why that might be, many of us probably could come up with part of the answer. We might say, well, because look at the world that we live in. Look at the life that I'm living and the things that I have to go through. There's just too much suffering, too much evil, too much things going wrong just to be thankful all the time. Because things in the world aren't the way that they should be. And to that, I would respond this. I would agree. In fact, I think the Bible would agree. Paul would agree. We live on a planet where things can really be just messed up, where things in life don't go well all the time, where things can be very hard and and very difficult, and where things are just not the way that they should be. You know, one of my things, and I know I'm a pastor, but I do this and I confess this, but sometimes when I'm driving and uh, there's a guy that cuts me off, it kind of triggers me a little bit. So what I do is I drive to the the side, speed up to him, and pass him. And as I pass him, I stare at him and shake my head. And then I go in front of him. You know why? Because that's not what he should do. That's not how it should be. You don't just cut people off on the street. This is what I feel. We feel this all the time, these things, every day. Cornelius Plantinga wrote a book. He's a philosopher and Christian who wrote a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a Breviary Breviary of Sin. And in it, he talks about this this, this, uh, lawyer who has to drive through the bad part of town, and his car breaks down, so he has to call a tow truck. And the tow truck comes, and this big, burly tow truck guy comes in to to really um, help the guy. But in between, this gang comes in and starts harassing the lawyer in the car waiting for the tow truck, and... They're trying to extort money from him. So the tow truck man comes in, and he grabs, he's a big guy, so he grabs the leader of the gang, pulls him aside, and this is what he says in the book. He says, quote, he says, man, this world isn't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait in his car without you trying to rip him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here, end quote. Not the way it's supposed to be. We feel this all the time. How do we give thanks? 
But here's the question, I think, getting to what Paul's trying to say here in cha- from chapter 1. If it's not the way it should be, if it's not the way it's supposed to be, where do you get the idea? Where do you get the idea of what it should be? Where do you get the idea of what it's supposed to be? Think about this. Every time you say, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, people should be like this, people shouldn't be like that, we ought to do this, we ought not to do that, you know what you're saying? You are saying, you are promoting a moral imperative. You are saying, this is the right way. That's not the right way. This is wrong. This is not right. This is what we're doing when we say things like this all the time. But the irony of this idea or this thinking is this. We used to live in a culture in this country that wanted to say that there is no such thing as a wrong way or a right way. That everyone has an idea, everyone has an opinion, and we should just accept everyone's idea. Why? Because there's no such thing as an absolute supposed to be or should be or not supposed to be to each his own. But today, maybe in the last five years in this country, did you notice this country, the place we live, has never been more divided than now? Why? Because people today feel so strongly about what should or shouldn't be, what is right and what is wrong. You name any subject, politics, social issues, views on race, gender, abortion, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, every situation, we think, we feel, we're emotional, we get angry, this is the right way. That's the wrong way. This is what it should be. That's what it not sh- shouldn't be. But the question that Paul wants to ask is this. Based on what? According to who? What authority? What kind of authority do you get to say that this is the way things should be or shouldn't be? What kind of authority, what, based on what do you get to think that this is the right way or that's the wrong way and carry any real weight? In other words, let me put it this way. Why should I listen to you if you tell me that what I'm saying is wrong? And the answer might be for many people. You talk to our young people, it's simply this. The answer is, well, it's because it's our culture. And in our culture, this is the way people think. And we are more advanced than previous cultures, and we are more grown and more enlightened. And so now this is what we all obviously know. That's now our culture. We are woke, they might say. Right? But cultures always change. One thing could be right one day, next minute changes, it could be wrong. Other people say, well, we we can say these things because it's society, and to make society work, people agree that what's best for all of society is what we need to say, this is right and this is wrong. But society is just people. You talk to your kids, how do you know what is right and wrong? How do you know what the way things should be? How do you know how you should think? Social media, your friends, it's just people. And I'm people. So why should I listen to you if we're all the same? Let me, let me just follow me here, okay? 
there is this thing called woke culture. I don't know, maybe it's kind of dying out right now. And I just want to say, um, I don't think it's all bad, actually. Uh, because of the culture, I have learned a lot. Uh, I have become more aware, I guess, of things that are thinking and going in the world. My kids teach me all the time, right? But there's a problem that I see, and that is this. This country is not the only country in the world. And the problem is that even though Americans might think we're the greatest country in the world, you talk to many other countries outside this country, they disagree. Because here's what Americans do. We are more advanced. We are more forward-thinking. We are enlightened. And we want to help the other countries to do the same. So they go to a different country, right? But the problem is, the other country, their values and their thinking are still somewhat traditional. And so when Americans come in with their ideas and viewpoints about what families should look like, what men and women should look like, what, what children should look like, when they come in and say, this is how it should be, this is better, this is how it shouldn't be. That's not so great. What do you think the response of other countries are? Oh, thank you for enlightening us. We knew we were stuck in the past. Thank you for saving us and helping us move forward. No. The reason why some countries in the world, many, consider America not so great is this. When the, current, when the Americans come in and do this, the response is, who do you think you are? You coming into our culture and telling us that this is better or that this is right or this is the way it should be, that's not enlightenment. That's cultural imperialism. American culture, American values imposed on non-American cultures. Isn't this the same thing that you want, don't want to happen? You don't want someone else's culture imposing on you, but isn't this what you're doing to us? This is the response of many, many other countries in the world today. Now, here's the thing. I believe in this country, but also in many other countries in the world, there are things that I believe is wrong, no matter what the reason, cultural or not. But the problem that Paul is trying to give us here is this. We need something greater and deeper and more absolute than just culture or society or modern people to be able to tell someone else, this should not be. This is the way it should be. And I would argue, I would argue, and this is just my opinion, that the average secular modern person does not have that. And that is part of the reason of why we are in the state that we are in, in this country. Because it's now people versus people, culture versus culture, country versus country, fighting, arguing, bickering for the right to say, this is how it should be. And we just can't seem to meet them halfway. You come to the Bible, and you say, I've got an, an alternative solution. Romans chapter 1, Paul says, God. God, who is the creator. Who is the one 
that is above all culture, all people, because he created them. So now we have an absolute to say that this is right or this is wrong, that this should be and this shouldn't be, because there is a God. That's what Romans 1 is trying to say. And when you tell that to the modern man today, the response is like this, what? That just can't be. That just can't be. Isn't God a cultural fabrication to kind of explain things that you can't explain? Isn't God the idea of a crutch that you need when you're going through something hard and you don't know where else to go? And my response to that person is this. Okay, let's say it is. But aren't you too? Aren't you a product of your culture? Aren't you influenced by the thoughts, the media, the the ideas that are floating around in your school, your work, your home? Aren't you a product of your culture? Would you be thinking the same thing 50 years ago, 20 years ago? So which culture is right? And this is where the Bible comes in just really straightforward. It talks about sin. Paul talks about sin. That's what he does. And we know this. He says in Romans 1, 2, 3, he says basically sin affects. Sin affects each and every one of us eternally. Each one of us, we, we begin life separated from this idea of God. We don't have a relationship with him. We don't trust him. We don't even like the idea of God. That's what Paul's trying to say in Romans 1, 2, and 3. But not only does it affect people, Paul says it affects our environment. It affects the external order of the world. The reason why things seem always broken is because of sin. That's his explanation. That's his worldview. And what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, from the very beginning, is that that sin, that idea of sin, has a direct effect on our ability and inclination to be thankful. Paul describes it this way. Verse 21 of chapter 1, although they knew God, he's saying this, you know You know there's a right and wrong. You know there's a thing called justice. You know there's a thing called equity. You know, you know there's dignity. You know there's human rights. You know there's meaning and purpose and significance. You know there's such a thing called beauty and love. That is not just a figment of my imagination. That is not just a process of my biology. That is not just created by a cultural, you know, milieu or wherever we live. You know these things exist. Why? Because you were created in the image of God, who is a God of justice, who is a God of equity, who is a God of meaning and purpose and dignity and beauty and love, and you were created in this image. And this is why people all across the world cannot get rid of these ideas. And yet Paul says in Romans 1, yet. They neither glorified God or gave thanks. What is sin? What is sin? What I like to do, uh, especially with, with my wife, is sometimes when people come over, you know, she'll cook or she'll clean. And then the guests come and say, oh, the food is wonderful. I mean, they're talking to me. The food is wonderful. It's great. It's awesome. And I say, thank you. And of course, after the guests leave, the wife might come up to me and she's a little upset. Why? 
because I'm taking the credit where credit is due. She's the one who did it. They should be thanking her. What is sin for Paul? Sin is not just breaking rules. Sin is not just doing something morally wrong. Sin is not failing to just do something morally right. What is sin? What is sinfulness? And in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul saying is this, sin is a failure to give credit where credit is due. Sin is enjoying the benefits without acknowledging a benefactor. Sin is refusing to acknowledge that there is a creator by refusing to give him thanks. And this is why I think at core, this is why I think Paul says the reason we're so unthankful and it's so hard to be all the time is because like, we know what we should do, but we just don't. We know we should be more thankful, but oftentimes we aren't. And Paul says that's because of sin. Robert Emmons, in his book, Thanks, How Practicing Gratitude Can Make You Happier, describes it this way. Again, not a Christian, but he said it this way. He says, real thankfulness involves three things, three Bs. There's a benefit, something good. There's a beneficiary, something who receives the good. And there is a benefactor, something at a cost to this person who gives the good. The benefit has values in the eyes of the beneficiary. There's a benefit, something good. There's one who receives that good. But for people in general, who is the benefactor? If you're ever feeling thankful out of nowhere for just random circumstances, but you aren't thanking God, who are they thanking? You could thank people for making you a great dinner, but who do you thank for the general circumstances of your life. This is the problem that atheist Frederick Nietzsche had. Nietzsche, hardcore atheist, didn't like the idea of gratitude and Christian gratitude. He called thankfulness a slavish ethic. He says when people are thankful, they're indebted to someone and it enslaves them. And so they are strangling themselves with the rope of gratitude. That's what he says. But in a biography during World War I, he's in a bomb shelter, and the bombing starts happening, and he's sleeping, and he immediately wakes up, sweating in fear, and the first thing he says is, I was just thankful that I was alive. And then two minutes, and I realize I've got no one to thank. Who do you thank? It's a dilemma. And this is the dilemma that even non-Christian psychiatrists know. Thankfulness requires a benefactor. Someone to give thanks to. And if you've ever felt thankful, it means there must be something or someone you give thanks to. Someone who deserves all our gratitude. Someone who gives all that we have. If you ever read the New Testament on people giving thanks, look it up. Nobody in the Bible ever gives thanks directly to a human being. Directly. But every time you read someone giving thanks, it's directed to God for that person. I thank God for you. 
I thank God for the church. I thank God for these people. Everywhere in the New Testament, thankfulness is always directed ultimately to God because there's an acknowledgement that ultimately, behind every good deed and every good person is God. This is why in our passage here in, first, uh, in Romans chapter 1, when Paul says that they do not give him thanks, he uses the Greek word eucharisto. Eucharisto literally means good grace. Eu, eulogy, good, charis, grace. So when he says we don't give thanks, he says this. It's something we don't deserve. That every time we say thank you, you're saying, I don't deserve this. In fact, I might deserve the opposite. It means that whatever you're giving thanks for, he did it, he gave it, he made it happen, and the point is, you didn't. And that's humbling. Christian thanksgiving is not some nebulous thanks fired off into space, but Paul says it's thanks given directly to God. And it says, I don't deserve this. God deserves all the thanks. And this is what Paul in Romans 1 is trying to say. This is what Paul is saying is the problem with humanity, that what people in their sinfulness fail to do, in fact, refuse to do, rather than acknowledge and thank a creator, they thank created things and they acknowledge things made by man. They did not honor him as God, nor gave him thanks. They rob God the credit where credit is really due. And just as any human being might be a little miffed, a little upset by that, if that happened to them, much more so an infinite and holy God. And this is why in chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all men. But here's the good news. Chapter 1, chapter 3, go to chapter 4. There's a beneficiary. Paul says it's you. There's a benefactor. Paul says that's God. And at a great cost to himself, there's a benefit. Not just God as your creator, but now your redeemer. He gives you his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you've been redeemed. You've been saved for what? To give thanks. You've been saved to be thankful. Romans 1, you're sinful, no thanks. Romans 4 and 5 and 6 and following, Jesus Christ comes, the benefit, now you are to be thankful. To give thanks, not just once in a while, but to give thanks always. Let me argue this for just a little bit moment. Belief in God increases your thankfulness. Frequency and intensity. Frequency. When you believe in God, you have more things to be thankful for. Because without God, everything is just chance accident of reproduction. But with faith, we know that our existence is not a chance occurrence, it's a blessing. This is why G.K. Chesterton, a philosopher and English writer, said this, all good things look better when they look like gifts. And when you believe in God, all the random good things that we think we are enjoying in life, we now see them as gifts from a loving God for which thankfulness is appropriate. For the believer, all good things of life are blessings from God. So you are more grateful, more often, because everything good is now a gift from this God. It increases your frequency. 
Second thing, if you believe in God, it also increases your intensity. Because people give gifts, but sometimes with bad motives. But faith in God, the intensity of thankfulness increases because his gifts, his blessings, are given out of love. There's no desire to manipulate you because he doesn't need anything from you. So what he gives, he gives freely, entirely for the good of others. And that ought to increase the intensity of our thankfulness. God's will for those of us who have faith in Christ is to live a life that shows the value of this God that we say we believe in, the worth of this Jesus who we say we worship. And the kind of life that shows the worth and value of who Jesus is is a kind of life that always gives him thanks. In all and every situation, from beginning to end, the Christian life ought to be, should be, a life of thankfulness. It's not fuzzy. It's not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. It's something we do based on what God has done. He saved us from wrath, redeemed us by his grace. He created us, but recreated us to give thanks because we recognize every good thing now comes from him and everything from him is a blessing. Friends, let me wrap this up. Thanksgiving is a great time to remember to be thankful, but it shouldn't be the only time to be thankful. We have every reason to honor him and acknowledge him and give him thanks throughout the year. This is why we praise and we worship him. We can sing like the song, a thousand years, a thousand tongues are not enough to sing his praise. I can do this now. Because I thank and I praise the one who made an end to all my sin. Let's pray.